Hey everyone, welcome to season two of Reversing Climate Change. We are doing that podcast thing now and launching a Patreon. You can find it at patreon.com slash Nori Podcasts. There are various tiers with different types of goodies available. Do you want to receive a special newsletter digest of what Nori Knots are reading that week? Be a part of a Nori book club? Get special access to Nori events? Go take a look at patreon.com slash Nori Podcast for what we're offering. And in that spirit of being lean in that startup kind of way that, you know, we like to do, this list of goodies is subject to change, and we'd very much like your feedback. Is there something that you'd really like to see, but it isn't listed here? Honest feedback does a lot to help us shape what we offer to you. You can send an email to podcast.nori.com or fill out our podcast survey anonymously in our newsletter, which you can find at nori.com slash subscribe. And thank you so much for listening to another season of Reversing Climate Change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast. I'm Ross Kenyon. I have my Nori colleague here, Christoph Jaspe. We're here to talk about investing in regenerative agriculture and regenerative investment in general. We've been meaning to do this for a while, Christoph, so thanks for the nudge to get this set up. Yeah, fun to be on here. We're really excited to have Kuhn van Sayen, also a fellow podcaster. I quite enjoy the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture podcast that he puts out. I think it's a great opportunity to explore a lot of the deeper themes that we think deeply about. And always nice to have a fellow traveler on the air. So welcome, Kuhn. Thank you so much. And, and it's, it's always great. doesn't happen too often yet, but to be on other podcasts, it's really, really nice to see the other, the other side and, and obviously be with, uh, with fellow podcasters and fellow Regen Ag. Um, enthusiasts. We've been on a bunch of other ones and there's been some crossover episodes and we're, by the time this comes out, we'll have released another crossover episode. But yeah, I guess everyone has their own little, little spheres of influence, I guess you could say, and they, they mostly keep to it. I mean, I guess, so I want to start this out. It's, it's interesting because your day job was working for a really cool company and then something inspired you to start your own podcast and work more on that and less for the really cool companies. So I'm curious about your motivations, Kuhn. Why now? Why the podcast? And what were you doing before starting the podcast? Yes, yeah, sure. So I um, have been active in the impact investing space um, for quite a while, actually. And I used to work at a fund called Aquaspark uh, based in Utrecht in, in the Netherlands, which focuses on sustainable aquaculture. So everything um, having to do with fish farming, I've seen the first insect factories where they were growing fish feed in a different way, algae, etc. And, and I got caught by the impact investing bug. And I really got very interested in how to put money to work, in this case, in the food system. And for me, the food system was a lot broader than, than just um, fish. And I joined an organization called Tonic, which is a nonprofit, uh, which works with a lot of impact investors that are trying to put their money to work to uh, hit impact goals and to get a return. So it could be anything from solar panels to ad tech to gender lens investing, the whole, everything you can put a, a positive impact label on. And obviously there's a lot of discussion of what is impact, how do you measure it, et cetera. Um, and I saw a lot of interest in food and egg, and, and I've been always very, very interested in food as a food person. I, I love good food. And in 2011, I discovered soil and discovered uh, the amazing connection between what we eat and how that's actually being grown and the potential of agriculture to be a positive a part of the solution instead of just be a, a, a less negative one, just a bit cleaner, a bit more sustainable. So the, the journey into regenerative food and egg really started in 2011. 
I had a lot of conversations with people that were setting up funds, investing in it, entrepreneurial farmers, people really trying to scale this beyond their own farm. And in 2016, I decided to to launch a podcast or I decided to record the conversations. I, I, I didn't know it would turn into a podcast. So I had something to share with the investors I was working with um, or I am working with and I saw the interest in food. And I had a really good reason to spend an hour or so on, on Zoom or actually it didn't exist, um, but on, on Skype with people that were building something interesting. So it was a good excuse because most people, as you know as well, say yes when you would like to interview them and they, they love to share what they're working on. So it was a really good reason, even without any listeners, to spend an hour or so with somebody that was building something interesting on soil. And then at the end of that hour, I had actually something to share uh, with the investors, with entrepreneurial farmers that I was talking to, like, look, other people are out there, they're building things, uh, there might be ways to invest or to put money to work at some point. And that got a bit out of control. We're now in 2020. And it's it became a lot bigger than a podcast a month or something like that, which was at the beginning. Kuhn, how much of regenerative finance or regenerative investing is the the recipient of investment? So investing in things that are better versus changing the form of how investments work. I've seen both. I think they're both lumped under regenerative investing. But are, are these investments typically structured in ways different from conventional finance? Or, or is it just applied onto more regenerative farming, seekers of investment, that sort of thing? Yeah, I think it really depends is the easy answer there. And, and I think that the discussion on regeneration in general and regeneration of an economy and not making it just a bit more sustainable as we've talked about in terms of language and stories for the last 20 30 years maybe 40 50 in some cases that discussion is still not we're still not having that to the full extent of what that actually means it's still very often unfortunately i'm investing in a regenerative food company or in regenerative farm but i'm using traditional terms which we could argue is probably not regenerative so there are luckily some very interesting examples on ownership structure, steward ownership, obviously skin in the game, funds that are profit sharing instead of uh, taking a fixed uh, fixed loan. So I see some experimentation, but compared to the normal way or the way we've always done it is either equity or debt, and that's pretty much it. It's still most of it is still that. So I wouldn't be calling it regenerative investing. It might be investing in regenerative food or agriculture. But I think the fundamental discussion on what does that actually mean is something we, we still don't have enough and something obviously I try to, to push for, uh, but it's very, very difficult sometimes. So you're in a pretty interesting vantage point because you're familiar with many different flavors of capital and understanding that this isn't just bottom line, maybe double or triple bottom line or trying to find additional impact beyond the funding. And oftentimes when we're out there, we're talking to folks with money and they say, well, this is a form of transition finance. And so it's like a transition from one state to another state and that other state is regenerative agriculture. And as you know, we work in a space with a lot of ambiguity on terms, but I'm just wondering, could you define what is transition finance in the regenerative economy and how do you see this playing out? I think, I mean... If you boil it down, many most investments should be tra transition finance or should get something to to another state. I think in regenerative agriculture, at least, obviously, regenerative agriculture isn't a sort of final state. Like if you get to that point, if you get to that level of soil organic matter, then you're done. It's much more of a journey, and and you see people taking it way further than we we thought was possible a couple of years ago. 
in terms of what I've seen in, in the, let's say the regenerative agriculture and food space, transition finance usually applies to farmers that want to go from one point to another and want to, for instance, go to organic or beyond organic and want to in, uh, get started with cover cropping. And so it, it, the finance there helps them through that phase or through that period. And then it's done. And like, there's, there's not a, it's not an equity play where you buy something. Um, you buy a stake in a company or a stake in a farm, you buy a piece of land and you have to exit through that. And the interesting piece in transition finance is you partner, if done right, with the farmer on that journey, which could be 10 years, 15 years, five years, two years, really depends obviously where the farmer is. And you, you basically, the finance helps that transition to happen. There's not, there's some experimentation. There's not too much. I think we're going to see a lot more in the food side of things. There's more because I think the investments in food companies have happened for a lot longer, uh, food startups, innovative bar companies, etc. And there it's usually, I don't think they will call it transition finance, it's usually growth finance, etc. But at the end of the day, it is a transition as well. What we've been focusing on mostly in the podcast has been transition finance for farmers and with farmers. So what, what are ways to put money to work where the investor and the farmer are on the same side of the table and not on uh, opposite sides and basically having a tug of war? And, and how do you do that in a way that also grows soil as fast as possible? So we really have been focusing on the farmer piece, which isn't easy, but definitely very, very interesting. How do you partner with farmers to, to help them through the transition, which can be very, very interesting from an investment point of view and very interesting, obviously, from an ecology and a farmer point of view. And so just to zoom in on just the United States alone, I think it's worth noting that farmers are in, what is it, half a trillion dollars worth of debt. So already debt financing is pretty huge in the economy that we both think a lot about. And you're bringing up different forms of transition finance, but what are the different types? So you're saying it, it, this isn't debt, this isn't equity. Can you talk us through the mechanics of some of these flavors of financing and how they work? Yeah, I think it's, it's important to notice we're very early in transition finance for regenerative farming. You see the first organic transition finance, uh, loans coming out now. And that's after like large scale. You see Rabo, uh, Rabobank finance or Rabo finance now coming out with an organic product to help farmers through that three year transition, which is a transition which we've done many many times and there's a lot of data backing it up and there's a there's a ready market etc so just to give you an understanding how long it takes for the financial sector in some cases to to come up with products that serve in this case farmers it's going to be a while before you can go as a farmer to your local bank and, and say i want to transition finance product because i want to speed up my regenerative transition but having said that we see i see at least quite some experiments and you are involved actually with quite a few of them. Uh, for sure, the perennial fund is very interesting, carbon yield, and there are some others. And I think what are the interesting points there are flexibility and timing. Flexibility as that the product has to, as farming is very uncertain, it seems to be key that the, the product moves either up and down with the farmer, or, or like I said, the investor or the lender is on the side with the farmer. So if there's a bad year, it doesn't wipe out the whole farm and basically forces land to be sold, etc. So flexibility and longer timeframes, like you cannot have a two-year loan or two-year uh, finance product to do a regenerative transition. A regenerative transition takes time. And so we as investors or the whole finance sector, we need to get our heads around it. You need to partner with farmers longer than we might be used to as really 
we need more time to to transition properly and actually get the results we want. So I think flexibility and timing are the ones we see in, in a lot of these experiments, but it's very early to say how big things are going to get. The perennial fund is raising 5 million just to give the... the and, and then there's a big question which you raised as well. Do we need more depth for farmers? Uh, probably we need more appropriate transition finance, but we don't want to put more depth on the balance sheet of farmers. Yeah, thanks for that answer. So I want you to keep going on the flavors of capital and the different sorts of funding. I mean, one previous podcast guest we had on was Woody Tash, and we talked about this concept mm -hmm. of blended finance, you know, where maybe there's even philanthropic capital coming in, or maybe there are bonds or green bonds or corporate crowd lending. Do you see these things playing a larger role in the transition finance space we're all working in? Yeah, absolutely. I think I wouldn't say the holy gra the grail will be green bonds, but if you see how uh, traditionally farmers have been financed, it's often through local banks. And these local banks have raised capital through bonds because that's how many raise capital. Some people see it as a sort of end game, like the moment you can go to almost any local bank, agriculture lender and, and present a regenerative transition plan and get cheaper finance because it's less risky, then we have done our job basically. And if those local banks can get those cheaper capital, it means that they can get green. They can issue green bonds. They can issue transition bonds. They can issue whatever we're going to call that. And that's where a lot of money is at the moment. We're not there yet. We don't have the track record and, and local banks don't have the ability to attract uh, cheaper capital yet. But I think it's something we have to keep in mind and learn from, for instance, the renewable energy space. Like how have they done that? And how have they structured it that now institutional players can put a lot of money to work in uh, renewable energy? I think in terms of how do we get there, blended capital is going to be a huge driver. Philanthropy obviously is limited in how much there is, but as we're still so small and as there are still only a few experiments, I think they're going to be absolutely crucial to provide first losses, to provide some kind of cushion for the first few brave investors that, that dare to invest in a flexible, open-ended, uh, skin-in-the-game, profit-sharing, transition finance fund. Like These are scary things and philanthropy can really help to unlock a lot of those. And then you get this blended, like it's partly profit and partly research as well. So I think philanthropy is going to be crucial. Corporates are absolutely crucial. I think more, maybe less on the access to finance or access to capital, but access to market. Like if they can, in their supply chain, um, offer an offtake agreement to buy the produce during the transition and after for a guaranteed price, probably hopefully a premium, but even a guaranteed price for a number of years can really, really change the game. So access to markets is something they can provide and they can also be the one that buy the ecosystem services, for instance, through a platform like Nori to basically help the farmers to speed up even further. I don't know if they will be investing, investing in their farmers, in their supply chain. That really, I think, depends on, on the corporate. Crowd lending, I think, is something we've seen a lot in other places like real estate, uh, renewable energy as well. And, and I'm guessing I see a few platforms now, but I'm guessing we're going to see a lot of that also in, in regenerative agriculture as you can get your local community and stakeholders involved and people can put maybe a thousand or 10,000 or $5,000 or euros to work to get a local farmer they actually know through the transition and might get a, an interesting return either cash or an interesting return in food. So I think we're going to see a lot of platforms popping up to to help a lot of farmers. And I think many farmers at the end of the day will, will choose a mix of those to to get going and maybe another mix to to speed up, etc. Where do you see ecosystem service payments playing a role inside of uh, the regenerative economy? Is this something that 
farmers should expect to see more of, or is this fraught with its own peril and they should maybe be looking towards some of the things that you're naming above, or is it just all of the above? <laughs> Ross, are you saying, I, talk us out of why we shouldn't build Nori? <laughs> I, I, always, I always like asking that question. And I hope listeners see that as us trying to <laughs> grapple with these issues, honestly. No, sure. I, I think it's going to play a very important role. I think it's very difficult to estimate now at the moment how much and how fast I, I think it's going to come as more and more people wake up to the potential of, of storing carbon in soil and, and it's probably the cheapest place we have to put it right now, plus all the other extra impacts that come from that. So the more people wake up to that, and I think every day people find different videos of you guys, but also other partners and more people read certain books, more people discover certain podcasts. So that's just going to increase from both the corporate as the and the private side. How much of a marketplace that will be in a year or, or this year, that I think is very, very difficult to, to predict. So I think it's going to, maybe water is going to be faster than, than carbon. Uh, maybe biodiversity will be in certain regions. I think we're going to see, again, a lot of experimentation. And in five years, we'll look back and like, wow, we, we really made a lot of huge steps. But it could also take three years or so to for really to break through because a lot of things have to be figured out in terms of, of measurement, in terms of models, in terms of payments, double payments, etc. But I, I have no doubt that in, in a couple of years, this is a normal part of a transition of a farmer uh, or farmers in, an, uh, in a larger ecosystem. So can we share your optimism? And a lot of what you're talking about is forward looking. We're talking about things that can happen in the future and we need to basically put in the steps so that we can get there. But I just want to put a pin in the bubble we're creating here that not everything is rosy and maybe there have been some missteps in some of these forms of finance. And so I'm wondering, can you speak to any anecdotes where things haven't gone the way as expected? Yeah, I think we need to be extremely careful when as investors or the finance space to, to approach farmers because they have been lied to and uh, by many, many people in the past that promised them markets for certain things, that promised them finance for certain things, and many cases that didn't happen. Um, so what you see very often is uh, probably some hesitation to get involved, like why would it be different this time? So I think us as a sector, we need to be very careful to not promise the moon and the stars and, and not deliver. And because that has been done many, many times in the past, and every time that happens, we lose basically a generation of farmers or we lose the trust of a generation of farmers, which means it sets us back and we don't have the time. I mean, if we had a hundred years, I wouldn't be too worried because at the end, uh, the economics of farming this way makes so much sense that most farmers will either transition or the land will transition to someone else. But we don't have a hundred years. We have five, 10, maybe 15. Um, so we need all hands on deck and really speed this up. But at the same time, we need to build trust with a community that has had a lot of not trustworthy people in the past uh, try to sell them certain things. So I think there's there's a huge um, job to do for us to to do that right and at the same time go go as fast as possible. And I, I try to do that partly with the podcast to really focus on the, the entrepreneurial farmers to people working in the space all the way from the small scale permaculture to large scale uh, designers that are taking on all landscapes to open up at least their thinking on on finance and investing that it's not all it's a tool it's a tool that we have to use uh, that i think we have to use to scale up but we have to use really right which means we have to learn about it we have to learn the evil sides of finance we have to learn the, the good sides and we have to figure out how to 
to use it in a way, but you cannot deny that that probably we need money to speed up this transition. And I think that's for all of us to act super enthusiastic about soil, to also learn about finance and investing. What does it mean, the language, the pitfalls, the, the risks, etc. Hey, sorry to interrupt. We've never done this before, but this is a mid-roll ad for our friends at Etitude. You may remember them from a bonus episode we did not too long ago where we talked with their founders, Kat and Phoebe, about the technology they use to turn bamboo, which is woody and you know rather hard, into bedding that is quite soft. It's a cool show and always fun to peek inside of a business that is working at the intersection of what is good for the planet and what consumers actually want. Nori aspires to this as well. And like any business, both Etitude and Nori need money coming in So, uh, hence this ad's existence. If you'd like to try Etitude's very nice bedding, and I also hear they make loungewear if that's your thing, you can go to etitude.com, E-T-T-I-T-U-D-E.com and use the promo code NORI, N-O-R-I, and get 20% off your order. Free shipping to you and free shipping if you want to return for any reason within 30 days. Help support Nori's podcasting efforts and a company trying to make it so that customers who care about the environment don't need to sacrifice comfort. Check out Etitude.com and use promo code NORI. And now back to the show. Ken, I really liked your comments about not losing a generation of farmers. We care a lot about soil. We think the potential to play a big role in reversing climate change is there. But we also tend to be very conservative. Uh, in fact, whenever articles come out that oversell <laughs> soil, we're always like, like I understand that this is getting clicks for you, but I mean, like if you if you overpromise and underdeliver on some of this stuff, it's it's going to be bad for the entire thing. So we and, and we will, yeah. It's it's, yeah. it's getting a buzz, yeah, yeah. And that that's the risk of just I don't even know how media is monetized these days, but also I think I think climate change stuff. There's a tendency towards boosterism that gets a little overheated sometimes. And everyone has their preferred solution that they like talking about how that's like the one, it's the golden ticket out of this thing. We're always just like, okay, all of the above, we need all of it. Be conservative in what you're saying. Um, we're trying our best, which is, it makes it hard to market in some ways too. Like it would be easier to market if we were uh, less restrained. Do you agree with that, Christoph? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just laughing because yeah, the boosterism or the sort of scarcity mindset that exists within the carbon removal or carbon dioxide removal space is kind of astounding. I mean, soil was going to be included as a mitigation strategy under the Kyoto Protocol and the forest lobby basically blocked them. They said, no, we should only plant trees. And so I think there is some lingering of this is the most important thing to do first when in fact, it's it's all of the above and we all benefit as a globe if we think in that abundance mindset. So I'm agreeing with you, Ross. But you can have you have you seen a lot of this too? People getting uh, a little too excited sometimes, maybe maybe threatening the long term success of soil. Oh, absolutely! I think people you you see the articles. I mean, the ones you're referring to of of this this changes everything overnight. Tomorrow we're done. This is our ticket out of out of this mess, and that. I think greatly underestimates the the job to be done and changing agriculture, which is something which is such a big beast if you look at as a sector and it's inter interconnected with so many other things that anybody that says that it's it's easy, why are not all farmers changing? Probably usually my, my answer or my question is with without sounding annoying, is like when is the last time you talked to a farmer and really listened to what he or she had to say? And you will figure out that yes, it's possible. 
And, but it's not easy and it's very complex and it's connected to many other things and people are very indebted or part of systems that we all have designed and we're all part of. So to say it's easy, no. To say that there's an enormous opportunity, absolutely yes. But I, I, yeah, I always get a bit scared when people present this as something that obviously needs to be done, but is also sort of, sort of easy. If only all farmers tomorrow um, started planting coffee crops, we'll be fine. And, and I think it, it greatly underestimates the, the huge transition. Uh, mainly actually between our ears of what is uh, in our heads, what is possible with, with agriculture? What if it was actually profitable? Like what if it was actually creating a stabilizing climate? Those things probably are possible, but we need to, to really dive deep into it to do the research. And we're really scratching the surface. We're such at an early stage that, that we have no clue and, and over promising. I, I agree probably leads to, to accidents and it's going to happen because it, it's blowing up. If you look at, at the amount of search results for soil, et cetera, and, and it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be us in the weeds, probably <laughs> building, building these things with very entrepreneurial farmers who are actually at the end of the day doing it and they need all the support they can get. I want to take us on a little tangent because you talked about going into the weeds and are hinting at things in agriculture where actually this concept you brought up, which is interconnectedness and seeing how related everything is a quote from John Muir, you know, when we try to pick out anything by itself, we find it hitched to everything else in the universe. And I was on a Zoom conversation last night and, you know, sort of had the like, white male check my privilege and thinking about where my food comes from and understanding that nutritious food is a privilege that I've always enjoyed, but isn't the same privilege that people from other socioeconomic backgrounds have even afforded. And so, well, you know, Nori's coming at this from a carbon lens, you're coming at investing in regenerative agriculture. There are all these other really complex systems that somehow all interrelate. Can you take us out of the weeds and try to make some sense of this for us? I actually think, I mean, the, the nutrition angle you mentioned is extremely interesting because at the end of the day, we might care a lot about climate and, and care a lot about soil because we see the potential, but the average consumer doesn't <laughs> simply and starts to care more and more, but it's a very complex story. And I think one of the keys to to get a much bigger consumer demand than organic, for instance, which is by no means regenerative, could be, but by no means is. To get a much bigger consumer demand, I think the the nutrient angle, so the nutrient density and the food as medicine discussion, and like does healthy soil lead to healthy produce and lead to healthy gut systems and thus thus to healthy people, and obviously uh, our interest to healthy ecosystems as well. That that discussion, I think, in the next years is going to drive a lot of demand because you see there's a lot of research coming out, and there would actually be a place to to also put a lot of grant funding into that research because if we can make it tangible for you and me, for somebody with children, that it this tomato that has been grown completely different than the organic tomato in the supermarket or completely different than any other tomato is actually much closer to a medicine than to food then I think we have a very different, we'll get out of the weeds because then everybody is interested and then there will be very few people that, that of course, we need to have a discussion on price and accessibility, but then you suddenly get into healthcare, you suddenly get into whole different realms where we spend a lot of money, um, which probably leads back to how we farm the food we eat. And I think that that could be one of the keys like next to transition finance and all, all the other stuff to really lead a lot of consumer demand for much better, more nutrition-dense food and thus much healthier soil. Cynically, 
large companies who use a lot of monoculture crops or sugar in their products would fight this. Are you seeing that of course, trend yeah. shifting? <laughs> yeah, I think companies that spend most of their money on marketing will, will, will be caught in this transition. I think also there, there's a, a transition. I think a few companies are trying Danone, General Mills, etc. I mean, the jury is out if that's going to work or not. I think they're going to have a lot of, they in general as big companies are going to have a lot of smaller ones that don't have the legacy supply chain and or supply web, as some people call it, but just can go straight and figure it out to the freshness and seasonality are going to, and regional food are going to get a whole new meaning if you can measure nutrient density on the spot and if you can show that connection. And then I think you don't need a global, for many things, you won't need a global supply chain. It doesn't make too much sense to ship it all around the world if it's losing all its nutrients on the way. So I think a lot of the small companies and, and new companies, startups, food companies, etc., are, are going to have a good shot there because they can show um, that they they can get you with a lot more nutrients than than some of the bigger ones in, in the supermarket. But it's going to be a very difficult battle. Um, we're going to find out that a lot of the food we eat, we thought was full of nutrients and it's actually not. And, and that might be painful and there will be a lot of doubt campaigns, obviously, as we've seen in fossil fuels and tobacco, etc. Around this, just as you see in chemical uh, input companies, they're, they're going to try to to get as much doubt into the system as possible just to, to delay and and yeah we have to be we have to be ready for that and it's not an we can probably look at the playbook of tobacco and uh, renewable or fossil fuels just to to see what's coming and this sector is big and there's a lot of money currently made away from the farm which is going to try to protect that uh, this is a bit of a basic question, but I'm not sure that we've addressed it in a very long time. But why might food grown in a regenerative fashion, and by the way, what is that exactly? I guess we haven't really dug into that. Uh, why would food grown in a regenerative fashion be more nutritious? Or, or what are the claims there? I'm, I'm curious if and how this has been measured, to what degree is this accepted uh, by food scientists? Uh, give us a nice baseline, Kuhn. Yeah, sure. So again, we're early here. There's very interesting research being done by the Bionutrient Food Association, by Dan Kittridge and, and some others there. There's very interesting research being done by Teak Origin and Shaw Shoemaker, or Greg Shaw Shoemaker, and they plus Jill Clepperton, actually, who have been in this for, for I think, plus 20 years. So they are all how do you say we're we're early, but at the same time we have seen very interesting results on uh, zinc, uh, for instance, in certain crops that just because of change of management and in this case cover crops, more complex rotations, uh, the basic regenerative agriculture practices, which are your ground is, should always be covered. You should either do no-till or very very little. Um, you need to have complex rotations in time and place, meaning you don't have monoculture, you always sow at least a few crops at the same time, and then either you separate them or uh, you figure out a way to, to sell them together. Plus over time, like years after year, you never have the same crop just to keep keep it complex. And at some place, many play people integrate animals. So those are the forming pieces. What we've seen, and again, I think in two, three years, we'll look back and we'll see a lot of a lot more data and a lot more published papers, etc. But we've seen early signs of significant differences in crops that have been grown, let's say, in healthy soils, full of life, basically. There could be tomatoes, could be carrots, could be actually eggs coming from chickens that come from different systems. Uh, could be certain citrus fruits, could be apples, etc. Where actually olive oil here in, in Cyprus, in Europe, uh, we've seen some farmers 
basically getting the, the beneficial pieces of, of olive oil off the charts, like they were never measured that high, not because he had different trees or anything, just because of different soil management. So we've seen some interesting examples, but I wouldn't say a huge uh, scientific body yet on the connection between healthy soil and the nutrients in the food, and not just 10, 20% difference, but significantly more, obviously, depending on the crop, the time, etc. And that opens a whole new discussion on, okay, if I can have the same crop, but just a different management, and I can get two or three times the amount of zinc, does that, what does it actually mean in terms of what is possible and, and in how, how empty have been our crops and how full could they be um, if, we, if we measured it more? And I think one of the keys here is measurement, not in the lab, but on the farm. So how do you democratize this, meaning that farmers can actually measure the nutrient density of their crops during the season and can adapt their, their management on that and can actually adapt during it instead of sending it to a lab? which obviously loses some of the nutrients as it's being sent to the lab, and which is, by the way, very expensive. So I think there's there's some movements there on these tools, which probably, plus a certain software, obviously, which probably makes this much more accessible for the normal farmer to start measuring and start adapting and start hopefully being paid for nutrients per, per acre, per hectare instead of yield. Sorry, there was a lot of information. No, that was great. And that sets up the next question I want to ask really well. You also mentioned another reversing climate change podcast alumnus, which is Dan Kittredge. And we should link to that in the show notes because he was able He's to great. talk about yeah. his work and with the Bionutrient Food Association. I'm really glad you mentioned Jill Clapperton. Actually, she's involved with a program called the Farmed Smart Program that mm -hmm. Nori is basically helping farmers who opt to want to sell their carbon removal through uh, that program, we're making that easy to do. And so it's an example of just stacking benefits. But you ended your comments with the technology side of being able to look at nutrient density and or just in general ecosystem health. And that really excites me. And so, you know, we talked about the basically handheld spectrometer tool that Dan was working on on his podcast. But I'm wondering if you could lay out the landscape a little bit where you see technology playing a role in this transition to regenerative agriculture and where you see that really speeding things up. Yeah, I think there are two, I mean, obviously marketplaces for, for ecosystem services like, like yourself. Um, but I think there's a technology piece there as well, apart from the marketplace, which is soil health measurements. I think we we desperately need easy, cheap, consistent ways of measuring carbon and measuring um, activity in the soil, etc. So I think there's there's a technology play there. A lot of people are working on that. So that's really good. Then we talked about, in this case, the measurement of nutrient density on the farm, or at least as close to the farm as possible. Some people are working on that. Dan is working on it a lot. Um, and Jill, obviously, and Greg as well. So there's some people, I think we need a lot more there for, for a lot of different crops, a lot of software development, a lot of ways to make this this much more accessible and hopefully soon also consumer accessible in your phone on your phone etc but i think there's a piece we often don't talk about and and it's a much bigger question um, which also actually often farmers don't ask and that's the question of what to plant where and why and we always look at a farm level like if we do a farm design if we do we always look more or less at the farm in the context etc but i see huge opportunities in the future to take it to a landscape view or take it to the ecosystem um, scale what would happen if you do regenerative agriculture in a landscape on an island in basically a, a biome 
And then the question comes, okay, I have a limited set of resources. I would like to regenerate this whole valley or this whole river system, but where do I start and, and which pieces are more important and, and which pieces should I do first and what should I plant where and why? And I think their technology, hopefully in the future, will be able to assist really good designers to make a lot of these calculations, these models, and to figure out, okay, what's the most optimum for instance, if I want to bring back a river or what's the optimum if I want to create as much biomass as possible, or if I want to store as much carbon in the soil, that might be different scenarios. And until now, we have really mostly done it on a farm level and never really on a landscape size. And I think that becomes very, very interesting. And it's something I haven't seen too much. Please reach out if you have been working on that. But I haven't seen too much development on, on figuring out that question, what to plant, where and why. We've seen a Bit. I mean, you kind of hear about it in terms of predictive analytics, where you're using machine learning algorithms that have some kind of black box and are able to tell you this information based on certain parameters. Uh, the jury's out because it's in farming, you know, you get in a lifetime probably 40 shots at doing something, and each time you might want to tweak it slightly differently. And then you need to really observe with nature and see how things react. Which brings up this interesting paradox that I think both Ross and I have been wrestling with because we have read a book called The Wizard and the Prophet by Charles Mann. Have you read that book mm -hmm. by any chance? No, I've, I've seen a lot of summaries but and I've seen, I think, a few presentations, but I've, I haven't read yet. I think it's, it's actually on my list, but I haven't gotten to, to it yet in this, in this lockdown we're in so far. But is it, is it, uh, is it worth it? It's great. It's it's. I think it's very good, and I think he's very fair to both the wizards and the prophets out there. I don't think he, which isn't easy, yeah. Which is not <laughs> to no keep, I, to keep both, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, I say that with a great deal of admiration. And Christoph, I'll let you continue. I just want to throw my two cents in. Well, all, all good. I mean, it just I couldn't help but ask, you know, and hearing you talk about using technology to make landscape design, this is very wizardly thinking. It's kind of like we can engineer our way out of any problem because of human ingenuity, where a prophet who is a land steward will come in and say, no, we need to sit back. Actually, technology is not the answer. Um, we need to let nature do its work. And so I'm wondering, Kuhn, to put you on the spot, to what extent do you see the world through a wizard versus prophet lens? And how do you see this playing out? <laughs> this is the out? first time this question has been asked, but I have a feeling it's just going to be, uh, uh, soon it will be a, a stand, <laughs> standing It's going to be a recurring It might one, become yeah. a staple. Well, Charles Mann, we're coming for you, right? <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> it's the office. I think it's an excellent question. And I would see technology as something that can augment the land steward. So I would say definitely on the land steward side, because without indigenous learnings, without people that have really, really understood their landscape we're nowhere. I don't think any software can ever design something that comes even close to that. But I think we don't have enough land stewards that can basically operate on a landscape size scale. And so if we can use technology to augment them and to help make them better decisions or larger decisions over larger areas, I think we can get a lot of these, I would almost call them gurus, but with, with actually admiration that are really, really good at designing a thousand hectares or acres or, or smaller ones, how do we get them to almost supersize that to, to 10,000 or a hundred thousand or more or a million? Like, how do we get that knowledge to, that is really deep and embedded? And I think we should absolutely not over, overstate it. Like, there's a lot of deep landscape knowledge in, in a lot of these places, but there's also a lot of 
ways we can leverage technology to to do this faster and maybe even avoid some mistakes or maybe even play some scenarios that we didn't think about because we have climate models that go for the next 10, 20 years, because we have certain things that machine learning can do really, really well. But I would always go for the augmented and definitely not replace because I didn't, I think then we, we are in, in deep trouble with something as interconnected, coming back to your previous point, as nature, because we'll, we'll simply simplify it to something and, and we've all seen what, what happens when we do that. No one ever gives a straight answer to that. First off. <laughs> of course not. It's it's just too neatly placed and everyone wants to find that middle ground there. I think we're both like that too. Yeah. So what you're saying is you're pro robots on farms, but you still want to see humans employed on that farm too. <laughs> uh, you could summarize it like that. I think there there's a role for, for, I mean, farm workers, we see it in the crisis now for any back breaking work. We should definitely look at any ways to make that more, uh, more humane. I mean, there, there, there's, why would we allow that in, in 2020 to happen? And I think technology will offer a lot of ways to, to do that. But I also think we should very fundamentally question what's that role because we've, we've made many mistakes in the past with technology and, and it's very easy, just like with money, just like with investing. It's a tool and, and we need to, to use it properly. And I think in, in terms of, if you look at a land steward and a very, the truth is probably most landscapes are so degraded that if we would put a fence around it and just let nature come back, it would take too long. And we probably need some kind of management somewhere. Either it's the introduction of certain species or the introduction of certain livestock, or it's the management of certain things to, to speed up certain regeneration processes. So it is, we, we cannot put a fence around and sort of imagine that we're out of it. I mean, we're going to influence it anyway. So we better, because we're part of it. So we better, we're part of the landscape if we like it or not. We better use it. Technology is part of it as well. I think we, we better use it and, and figure out a way to, to leverage and, and speed up because we, we are literally, literally running out of time and soil. I think that last point puts you in the, the wizard camp, at least somewhat. I think I think it's a fair point. I mean, in, in the book, he talks about how Norman Borlaug, you know, father of the Green Revolution, grew up on a farm, found it to be backbreaking, not super fun to be out no. there in the fields on his family farm. He was looking for ways to make that simpler and easier for people so he could go off to school and do other things. And I think we tend to romanticize, romanticize it. Oh, we totally do. Uh, I mean, individually we do, but also collectively we like this bucolic image of farm life, um, which is true for some people. Many people that we've had on the show really enjoy their lives that way, but I'm not sure everyone experiences that, it that way either. No, I think we have to be very careful to romanticize that and, and be, um, I think there are ways to, to farm um, and have a very healthy lifestyle, but it's also the case, like a very healthy work life balance, et cetera. And I think many regenerative farmers you will find um, have a much healthier lifestyle in general than, than non-regenerative farmers, lower stress levels, et cetera. I think Savory just did a research on that. But the truth is most farmers are not like that. And most farmers do work weeks that, that makes the normal the city person uh, look like a joke. And for a salary that, or for a profit at the end of the year or any kind of return that, that really is like a lot of farmers are farming below the poverty line. So we should have a very, tough discussion on why did we allow to the people that are growing our food? Why did we create a system like that? And I think the future needs to be farmers that are comfortably healthy and, and have a work-life balance that makes sense. And at the moment, most, if it's from smallholder farmers to, to the large scale, most of them have not, not a healthy work-life balance, which is 
honestly dangerous for all of us. Well, Kuhn, maybe this is outside of your ken, or maybe not. And feel free to answer as you know, non-American here. You have different policies in your your homeland. But what is the role of policy? Do you think between investing in the regenerative economy and regenerative agriculture, and what is the role for for various states to play, if any? No, I think the role is huge, and it comes up actually quite often in the podcast. When I ask, like, what would you change overnight if you could do one thing? And policy actually comes up quite often. It's not something I've explored too much because I, I'm, it's simply not my space. Um, but I think as an investor, but also as a farmer, it's very difficult to make this transition towards more regenerative practices if all the policies that, that are in place in your country or your state or your region basically push you the, towards the other side. You have to be very, very persistent or very close to bankruptcy to to go through that if if all the policies push you towards that and so far most policies i've seen are are not very in favor of building soil regenerative practices lowering inputs dramatically growing nutrient dense food etc um, there are some examples i think it's changing a lot but in, in general because we've created another system just to grow as much food as possible and never be hungry again at least in europe hasn't been focused on soil health. It's changing slowly, but we're dealing with a legacy set of policies that simply didn't think about soil as we are thinking about it now. So it's more a legacy issue, I think, but it doesn't help at all, obviously, if you want to really go uh, go forward and you're basically being pulled backwards because a lot of things you cannot do, like planting trees on a farm because they simply never thought in policies that that would happen on a on a broad acre farm, just to name an example. Yeah, we solved that problem of, well, in some ways we solved the problem of there's less hunger, more people can exist on fewer farmed acres. Uh, have you ever seen that that meme? That, man, this might be get cut because it's, it's too hard to explain the visual <laughs> element of this. Have you seen that meme of those those guys at the castle and they're like, so-and-so is coming, open the gate. Oh, it's so-and-so. Close the gate. Oh, it's actually someone else. Open the gate a little bit. That's that's how I feel like it is between this, like grow as much food as possible, Absolutely. regenerate as much yeah. as possible, but it's maybe more expensive or harder to do. And then there's just like this fine middle line where people are fed and soil health is taken care of. Christoph, did I emulate you? Is this is this too far of a stretch to have tried to make? No, I think it's good. I mean, I am agreeing with what Coons has to say. It just even to look at America, which is ostensibly a breadbasket, like of the corn that we grow most of like how much do you eat yeah. yeah how much do we eat like the vast majority and i don't i'll get the numbers right but i think roughly 40 percent of that goes to producing ethanol another 40 percent goes to feeding meat you know should we be making ethanol should we be eating meat that's eating corn wouldn't that meat be happier or the cattle be happier to be eating grass um should we be growing corn at all but corn is something easy to standardize and sorry, not should we be grow growing at all, but should we be growing the amount of corn that we do? And then to what extent do policies actually prop up that simplistic system versus the reality of what's just more complex for soil health? So I agree that we have perverse incentives that those who understand some of these interconnections and what truly is good for ourselves and the environment, like we're fighting this uphill battle. So in some cases, you know, to evoke the libertarian in me, it's like, get rid of all farm subsidies and policies and like, let the free market compete. <laughs> How does that fit with you, Kuhn? <laughs> I have no idea. I, I mean, in my discussions or interviews in with people in the US, I think the subsidies or the, the crop insurance system comes up time and time again as, as one of the biggest barriers for people to switch because 
anything you want to do to grow soil simply doesn't qualify. And and in that case, maybe it would be a, a good thing. But I I really don't have the knowledge to to basically take that take that away and see what happens. But obviously, you're playing with lives and people that have optimized the system to grow corn for either ethanol or feedstock, which is something. I mean, fundamental question: Are you growing food? Then probably not. Um, but it's yeah, it, it created a huge perversive incentive to not change, even if you wanted to. Um, so I would love them to disappear, but I also don't know because whenever you make um whenever you in an interconnected system change something for sure there are going to be uh, unintended consequences that we we cannot imagine what a graceful answer to such a direct weird question Krista. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you want free markets full stop kuhn what do you think about full communism are you <laughs> is, that, is that an alternative that you'd like no i think i think it's a fair question what i like about the libertarian analysis on something like this is a lot of the the libertarian way of thinking for this is what can you take away that would improve the system? Like instead of adding a policy, is there a policy that has distorted things that we could just remove that would make things simpler? There'd be less law on the books that would actually lead to a better result. I think that's a fun exercise and it's almost, I almost never encounter it in these spaces. I don't know why it's always the addition of new policies and very rarely the, the subtraction of ones that are obsolete or not very good. Maybe it should be a law that if you add a policy, you have to remove one or something like that. I I love that whenever that's suggested. That's a, I think that's a really clever way of doing things, and I, I wish that were the case. But I think it's very dangerous to also say we like what if we remove this? Then these are our systems. They're very complex, and and even if you remove one thing where you where we're pretty sure that it's going to be beneficial for the whole system, we might still get hit from left or right because something we we over oversaw. So I. It's very difficult because you cannot run the scenarios because you, you don't have an, another America to play with, basically, and to see, okay, what if we do it for a control group and what if we don't? But I think it's it's very tricky in these systems to add something or to take something away because everything is connected and, and you might just pull away the, the, the last Jenga piece and the whole tower collapses. And that might not, might not have been in your model, but it doesn't mean it doesn't happen. That's absolutely the case. And it's a good reason to be cautious. I think it's also a good reason to maybe not do a lot of this stuff at the federal level just because there is so much diversity with inside mm-hmm. the country. And if it works well in one place, who's to say that it doesn't mess up the complexity somewhere else? Like, is this this is maybe a good argument for some level of subsidiarity and uh, decentralizing to some amount too. Granted, that comes with its own risks as well. This is why this is like the classic fight within liberalism that we have never been able to resolve because it exists in permanent tension. Oh, okay. Enter Coon, the impact investor show. to figure it all out, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because, because we got it all figured out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Americans like to think of Europe as having it totally figured out. And um, I think I think we're all seeing that it's it's as much a dumpster fire over there as it is over here. No, absolutely. I think, I mean, for sure, let's say Europe is ahead on certain things. And for sure, it's very behind on other things. I mean, there's no... I, I don't think anybody has figured it's completely out. No, I guess uh, we'll keep running our mouths, seeing if we can turn people on to cool ideas that maybe maybe help things in the future. And if people wanted to learn more about all of the interesting things that you're working on and thinking about, Kuhn, what's a good place for them to to find you and find your work? Yeah, I mean, for sure the podcast, um, which I, I imagine people are into podcasts, otherwise they wouldn't be listening. So you can find it, find it on in any podcast app, um, basically search for investing in regenerative agriculture, or you can go to the website, which is investing in regenerative agriculture.com. 
and you can find uh, basically the episodes you can find some webinars we did and we basically i i tried to share my my research into the space of how to put money to work uh, to regenerate soil and get a fair return if possible um try to share that as publicly as possible through through interviews which i've been very lucky to interview very very interesting people so far and we're about i think 78 or 79 interviews in so it's been it's been quite a journey wow that's a lot i think a lot of the podcasts don't make it past i don't know a couple episodes 10 episodes i think most stop after three or four yeah (laughs) yeah so you're you're in for the long haul you're here to stay and I have a long list. It's my, my, my issue is how to select, honestly. I think I have 150 or over 150 other interviews I want to record. So I'm, I'm going to be doing this for a while. Yeah, that, that's not a bad problem to have. Um, no. I think many podcasts also, they, they, they run out of stories to tell, which in this case, I think in our case, both of, is, is absolutely not the issue. No, I mean, I feel like uh, every direction I look, there's an interesting podcast to be done. And I think we find new uh, new ways of thinking about it all the time. So those links are all in the show notes. Thanks for being here, Kuhn. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share. It was was a lot of fun. Yeah, and thank you, Christoph, for popping your, your head back in here. It gets a little lonely sometimes. Yeah, and hopefully one day where this social distancing, don't see other humans ban goes away, I look forward to meeting you in person. That would be great. Great. And thanks for listening. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher. Tell your friends. Uh, we have a Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash Nori Podcasts uh, with S, plural, podcasts. And thank you so much for listening. Well, thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and or Stitcher. It really helps us a lot to get this content to a wider audience. If you think what we're doing is useful, interesting, fun, hopefully all three, we'd certainly appreciate your rating and review. You can keep up with Nori at Nori.com where there is a newsletter. That's Nori.com slash subscribe. There's podcast. There's a whole bunch else. Or you can send us an email at podcast at Nori.com. We are also now on Patreon at patreon.com slash Nori Podcasts if you'd like more content, engagement, and community. And thank you so much for your support.